0: uh, your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to to open back up to Psalm 19. We're going to continue our study uh, there. I remember when when I was in college, I used to get off uh, from work, uh, and uh, I worked at restaurants, and so I'd get off late, and uh, if I hurried at the the mall that I worked at, the Barnes and Noble would still be open. Remember Barnes and Noble, bookstores? uh, You could uh, go in and Uh, look at books Uh, and uh, I always remember going in uh, bookstores uh, way back when before they all closed down because of Amazon but uh, one of the biggest sections in uh, any uh, bookstore if you go to a library uh, would be the the self-help section if you were to to search online uh, for self-help books uh, you would find an almost infinite supply of them Uh, 10 ways to fix this five tips on uh, doing that, three ways to find freedom in, he's kind of fill in the blank. Uh, You can find uh, your best life now. Uh, And these books are published really at an astonishing rate. Uh, And it has been that way uh, for quite some time. And I think it will continue to be that way uh, for quite some time. Uh, What is uh, what is saddening to me is uh, the number of Christians who are turning to these same resources, uh, to these same kinds of books. If you look uh, online uh, at the ECPA uh, bestsellers, which is a list of Christian uh, books that are bestsellers for 2021, there were a, a handful of, uh, of great books on there. Uh, but uh, and there were also an abundance of resources that I would classify kind of in this category of, of Christian uh, self-help. Uh, they are uh, books that are kind of uh, secular humanism, psychology, and philosophy with a, a Christian uh, wrapping around them. Uh, and uh, this, this reality, I think, raises a, raises a good question. Right? We all face problems in life, right? Anybody here not facing any problems right now? Uh, anybody not uh, needing any uh, advice or, or wisdom, uh, counsel on how to handle uh, a, a situation in life? We all face these situations, but there is a tendency uh, for us to to turn to human philosophy, psychology, and psychiatry for uh, answers to life's problems. Uh, and uh, many many churches do this. Many Christians do this. But but I would ask this question, right? What did Christians do before psychology came around in the nineteenth century, end of the nineteenth century, beginning of the twentieth century? What what did they turn to before that? Did God leave his people without help and without hope for thousands of years until modern psychology came about? Do do we really believe that? That there was no answers to life's problems? Uh, we, We had nowhere to turn. I don't believe that God left his people without answers for thousands of years. I think that God has given his people everything that we need for life and for godliness everything that we need to know to live a life in relationship with god uh, he has given to us in his word right the the chapter that daryl read earlier this morning second timothy chapter three says how much of scripture is god breathed inspired an exact number what was it all of it Uh, and it was profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for how many good works? Yeah. So that we can be uh, mature and equipped for no matter what comes our way, we know how to handle it. Second Timothy or Second Peter one three uh, says much the same thing that we have uh, all that we need for life and godliness. Second Peter uh, one19 uh, through twenty one says that what we hold in our hands. Uh, is a testimony that is more sure than the eyewitnesses, uh, eyewitness accounts of the apostles. Uh, the apostle Peter, who was there on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, who saw Jesus appear in glory, says what we have written down to us is even more trustworthy and sh- certain than what he himself saw. That's what we hold in our hands. That's what we must see and believe. Do we believe that God's word is absolutely sufficient, that it is enough for us? I believe that, and I believe that because that's what God's word proclaims, and that's what I have seen over and over and over again. Uh, As people have uh, sent me an email or called me on the phone, uh, who have come into my office, and Bruce has an even longer list because he's been in ministry for 35 years. Uh, I've seen this over and over in life and I've been able to to point people to God's word not in a in a uh, dismissive fashion of hey just read this verse uh, and go to sleep and you'll be fine in the morning not not with that kind of a flippancy but God's word has answers for all of life's problems and this really is going to be uh, what David is saying in this portion of Psalm 19 now this is going to be his meditation and we've been studying our way through Psalm 19 and there's really you could say three major sections in uh, Psalm 19, at least the way that I'm uh, dealing with it. There's two major divisions in verses 1 through 6, which we've looked at in weeks past, where, where David spoke about God's creation, uh, general revelation, what God has revealed about himself in nature and in the heavens. And then in the verses 7 through 14, uh, David writes about the word of Yahweh. Of how the word uh, impacts him, and then uh, that's really verses seven through ten that we're going to look at this morning. And then next week we're going to look at verses eleven through fourteen, which are going to show us how we should respond to God's word. Uh, how should we respond to what He has revealed to us? And uh, what I'd like to do this morning is uh, reread the whole psalm, because it uh, uh, it is a tremendous, tremendous uh, poetic work by David. Now, I would begin uh, at the title where it says a psalm of David, and then he says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them... Your slave is warned and keeping them. There is great reward who can discern his errors. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my Redeemer. Let's pause and pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm that you gave uh, to your servant David. Uh, We thank you for uh, the poetry uh, that he recorded for us here, the way that he has presented truth to us uh, in a winsome way, in a convincing way. May your word now instruct us but also, may it put you and your word on display. Uh, may it capture our hearts and our attention. Uh, may we grow in our affection and our love for you. And May you bless and guide our study of your word. And may it make an impact and an imprint upon our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, David is, is writing, uh, using poetry. He's writing a song that was to be sung. Uh, probably in corporate worship in ancient Israel. Uh, This was a a reminder, uh, and uh, this is written to convince us to trust in God's Word and to move us along uh, in uh, love for God uh, and His Word. But again, why should we trust God's Word more uh, than experts? And really what God's Word says is is that we are to trust uh, the Word of God even more than we trust ourselves, even more than we trust our own hearts but why should we do that it's a big question that we have to answer and i think it's going to be answered here uh, in uh, this psalm of david and what we uh, can observe here is four uh, four truths that that david teaches through the, the w- words and language that he uh, presents to us here uh, that will encourage our hearts concerning the scriptures uh, and the first uh, would be this uh, we're going to look at some different parts of speech uh, And the first point would be, the first truth that we see is that the nouns here in verses 7 through 9 teach us the role of Scripture. If you look at these nouns, we see the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh, the commandment of Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh, and the judgments of Yahweh. Those are six synonyms uh, that David uses to speak about one thing, uh, the written word of God. And there are no major sharp distinctions uh, between these uh, synonyms, uh, but there's a, an over, some subtle uh, and small nuances. But all of, these, all of these synonyms point to the word of God as something that we must obey, something that we must abide by. Uh, And each of the the nouns uh, has an emphatic position uh, in uh, these lines. The Hebrew language uh, usually is is written and spoken in a different word order. We usually uh, in English, and this is the same in Greek, we usually say that the subject of who's doing something We say, I kicked the ball. Uh, I'm the subject. The verb is kicked, and then the object uh, is the ball. Uh, Hebrew, it's it's the exact, uh, uh, well, not the exact opposite, but it's different. Usually, you do uh, the verb first, uh, and then the subject, and then the object. And if you if things go out of order, there's an emphasis placed. Hebrew is usually uh, kicked I the ball. Uh, But here, uh, David begins each of these six lines uh, with an emphasis upon the noun, upon the subject this is uh, the word of Yahweh, the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh. He is emphasizing uh, these synonyms uh, and describing and thinking about God's word in the same way that he thought about and described God's creation. Now he's transitioned over to the written word of God and he begins uh, with the law of Yahweh. Uh, which is uh, the idea of direction or, or instruction, uh, of teaching. Uh, this is a comprehensive term for God's uh, revealed will. Uh, and the law of Yahweh is meant uh, to guide and to uh, direct us. It was written for our uh, instruction. Uh, and even more specifically, the law, this term Torah, uh, became a common way of referring to the first five books of the Bible. Last month we read uh, Deuteronomy, which is really the capstone uh, to the law. It's a capstone to the Torah. If you understand uh, Deuteronomy, you're going to understand the Bible a lot uh, better. Uh, and that's the foundation of wisdom and understanding. Uh, and uh, the law was written to instruct Israel and they were to live according to uh, the law, r- according to what God had revealed to them. Now, then we have the testimony of Yahweh. This is the idea of uh, a witness or of uh, stipulations it has the, the connotation of a, a warning. Uh, and the same word is used uh, to describe the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written upon. Uh, those were the, the testimony of Yahweh. Uh, and the scriptures are God's written testimony to man. It's how God has uh, given uh, witness about uh, himself and what, how we are to live. Then we have the the precepts of Yahweh and the idea is the procedures or uh, the statutes Uh, and the the root word here has the the basic meaning of exercising oversight uh, over a subordinate either in the form of inspecting uh, or of taking action to cause a considerable change uh, in the circumstances of the subordinate either for the better or the worse. Uh, so the, the precepts are about guiding and overseeing. Uh, that's what God's word does. And this word is really uh, used only in the Psalms. And it has the idea of an authoritative charge that's going to be binding upon the one being spoken to. And then we have the commandment of Yahweh. Uh, the particular uh, conditions of a covenant. Uh, and uh, it's, it's amazing uh, of what, uh, how they are described here. We'll, we'll get into this. But they, they open the eyes. Now, uh, the commandment of God opens the eyes. They are radiant. Uh, and these are the, the uh, imperative instructions uh, given in God's laws. we read through Deuteronomy, there were a whole lot of you shall and you shall not, right? Uh, and all of those were the, the covenant stipulations that Israel was to, to live by. And then uh, the fifth uh, line that we have is that the fear of Yahweh. And this is used as a a synonym here, but you're kind of like, wait a second, the fear of Yahweh? Uh, Yes, used in reference to the Word of God, uh, but it's really describing what, what the Word of God, what the law, what the commandment, what the testimony produces. If you remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Then Moses says something similar at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, where he says, hey, gather all of the people every seven years and every seven years and when they are in the land of Israel. During the time of the Feast of Booths, uh, when there was to be uh, the forgiveness of of debts, uh, they were to all gather together uh, and they were to, to read the entire book of the law. That would be a long morning, right? It says, assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that you may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Uh, this, this was what Israel was to live by, and they were to get a uh, a reminder of it every seven years, reading really it in its totality. The last of these uh, synonyms that David uses here is, says the judgments of Yahweh. These are the 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 rulings, the the legal decisions, the 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 case law, the the precedents, uh, and the the, the specifics. If you uh, study Deuteronomy carefully, uh, the Ten Commandments are, are repeated uh, from Exodus 20. They're given in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, and then in one sense, uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 25 is Moses going into the specifics of how each of those Ten Commandments is to be applied uh, to the lives of the people of Israel. Okay? Uh, and, and how the, those specific specifics uh, take place uh, in day-to-day life. Right? So the commandment not to, to murder uh, also means that you should build a fence around your your rooftop, right? If you have a, a, a parapet, uh, build a fence so nobody falls off again. These are the, the practical ways that you care uh, and live out the Ten Commandments. Uh, those are the the judgments, the the case law that God gives. And ultimately, the word of God uh, is to have uh, a shaping influence upon our lives. That's uh, that's what we see in all of these synonyms. All of these synonyms, again, point to the fact that God's word uh, is to be obeyed. And we have all been shaped uh, by many people, uh, ideas and experiences in our lives. Each of us is going to have a a long list and they're all going to be different. So I myself uh, have been shaped by by growing up in a false church. I grew up around people who claimed to speak for Jesus and who did not. Now, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up going to, to public school. I grew up uh, and I was a, an athlete all throughout high school and all throughout college. Now, I've been shaped uh, by that. I've been shaped by going to seminary. I've been shaped by being married and having kids. Uh, I have been shaped by all of my lived experiences, everything that I have uh, been exposed to, all the people that I have known, all the ideas that have come my way, it's a long list, and I'm sure you have a long list as well. And it's worth the time to even think about what have been the shaping influences upon my life. But by far the most influential experience that I have ever had was in college and when I became a Christian. When I understood the gospel and I looked to Christ in faith. Now, that has been the most shaping experience of my entire life, and I have been continued to be shaped by God's word ever since then. And God's word is not supposed to be just one of many influences in our lives. Rather, it is to be the ultimate influence, the one influence that stands over and above all of the others, the one influence that helps us to see and evaluate every other experience, every other uh, idea, and all of the people that we come into contact with, we are to, uh, to interpret and evaluate according to the truth of God's word. Psalm 1 and 2, which again, or Psalm 1, was served as an introduction to uh, the entire Psalter, the entire songbook. Begin with these verses. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. I was reading John Piper's commentary on this, and, and he pointed out something that I hadn't really seen or thought of before. He says that the, the contrast being made is not just between uh, the righteous and the wicked. He says that the contrast that is being made in Psalm 1 really has to do with this. The influence from one place versus the influence from another the contrast is about being shaped in one way versus being shaped uh, by another way the word of God is intended to shape us and to mold us by telling us what to do what not to do how to speak how to listen how to flee from sin how to run to Jesus even as we sang this morning right wasn't that a great song Jesus strong and kind that Jesus says if I'm thirsty where am I to go a run to him and the bible does this in a variety of ways right deuteronomy uh, moses writes to us under the inspiration of the holy spirit and he he gives a lot of uh, direct commands right again do this don't do this but david does this in the psalms with poetic language the language that is intended to to stir our hearts and our affections uh, to change our emotions Uh, David uh, says, look at all of the things that God's word is. Look at all the things that God's word does. He says the same thing in numerous ways. And the nouns that David uses for God's word in these verses teach us what God's word is intended to be and do in our lives. It is to be the premier shaping influence uh, over us. Even more so than uh, our peers and our neighbors, even more so than social media. Uh, even more than Hollywood, even more than Washington, D.C. God's word should be the premier influence in our lives. John Piper, in in his commentary, uh, he's speaking about Psalm 1, but I think it's also applicable here, thinking about what shapes us. He says, nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the way of sinners out of duty, duty. Nobody sits in the seat of scoffers out of duty. We walk and stand and sit in their ways because that is what we want. And we want their ways because we have been watching them so intently that what they do has become attractive. We have, in one sense, meditated on them, and now we delight in them. We are shaped. That is how worldliness happens. You start by looking at the stuff of the world and its ways. You chase the distractions and hear the empty promises. And then you look at them and begin to think about them so much that you desire their ways. And therefore, find yourself walking and standing and sitting in their counsel, their ways and their seats. Eventually, you wake up to realize that you are dangerously similar to them. sobering right All well, the, the the subtle ways that the world is constantly shaping us that we have to be intentional to make sure that we are being shaped by god's word does the scripture have the appropriate role in your life and is what influences and shapes you the most scripture or something else and only you really know well maybe those close to you know if you're struggling to, to figure that out, ask a spouse, ask a parent, ask your child. As you examine your life, some of you might be realizing that, that the world is influencing you far more than the scriptures. But in your heart, you might be wrestling with, but, but is that really bad? Like, do I really have to address that? Should I I really give God's word uh, that type of a position and authority over my heart and over my mind and over my life? I would would draw your attention to another kind of word that David uses in these verses. We've looked at the nouns, but I would also now point to the adjectives, which teach us to trust the scriptures. Now, for those of you who have repressed your memories of high school English, adjectives are words that describe nouns. They tell us what those nouns are like. And uh, each of the nouns in those six lines also has a corresponding adjective that that serves, I would say, to convince us of the trustworthiness of God's word. If you look at these adjectives, it says the law of Yahweh is perfect. It's the idea that it is without defect or or blemish. It is uh, flawless. Uh, And the perfection of God's word uh, means that it is not lacking in any way. It is uh, the same idea that in the, the sacrificial system in Leviticus uh, that you weren't supposed to, when you were bringing a lamb uh, as a sacrifice for sins, you didn't like bring uh, the sick lamb that was already going to die. You didn't bring the one uh, with a broken leg. You're like, well, uh, he's really of no use to me. I'll just use him as a sacrifice. That's not what you were supposed to bring. What type of a lamb were you to bring in the sacrificial system? One that is spotless and blameless. That's the the same idea here. One that is perfect. One that is not lacking in any way. And so that's what we see to describe God's word here. God's word is not lacking in any way. It tells us all that we need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God. It doesn't tell us how to do absolutely everything in life, right? Can't update your iPhone software, which some of you probably need to do. It doesn't teach me how to build a chair or throw a curveball, how to mow my lawn or how to drive a, a stick shift. Now, honestly, it doesn't teach me anything that trivial. It teaches me far, far more important things, it teaches me who I am, why I am here, what I am to do in this life, how I am to relate to God, how I am to relate to others, those are the most important things that I need to know in life, and it teaches me all of them. The Scriptures are sufficient, and they are enough to teach me everything that I need to know to be in right relationship with God and with others. The law of Yahweh is perfect. The second line says, The testimony of Yahweh is sure. The idea that it is reliable and faithful, and it has been confirmed over and over again. What Yahweh has declared in His Word is absolutely trustworthy. The precepts of Yahweh are just, mean they are right uh, and proper. The idea is that they have been uh, stretched straight. Uh, they have been made smooth and level. I use this illustration uh, w- with, my, uh, with my son, uh, talking about when, when he sins and when he does his own thing, what does life get like? It gets all difficult, right? Uh, But what does God's Word help us to see and do? It it makes our paths straight. Uh, That's what it does. It it straightens and orders things rightly. Uh, His precepts are just. They are right and proper. The commandment of Yahweh is... Pure. Really, the idea here is of being uh, empty or of being free. The same word is used to describe uh, precious metals that have been refined; they've had all of the, the impurities uh, taken out of them. The same word is being used uh, to to speak of slaves who have been set free. God's word uh, is uh, free from any uh, and all blemishes. It is pure. The next line, the fear of Yahweh is clean. This has to do with being ceremonially clean. Again, the the word is used uh, in Leviticus to describe those that are uh, clean and unclean. Those things that have uh, been uh, profaned, how do you make them holy again? How do you set them apart and sanctify them? Describes uh, things in that way. The idea is of being ethically and morally clean. He says the judgments of Yahweh are true. But there's a little bit of a, an inaccurate translation there because really what it says is the judgments of Yahweh are truth. It's a difference. The idea of the root word here is of firmness and certainty. God's word is more than just true, right? You can have a math equation that is true, but God's word is truth. When we return to John's gospel, uh, the idea of truth is going to be a recurring theme as Jesus is spending his final night with his disciples uh, in John 13 through 17. Uh, truth is going to come up over and over again. John 14:6, Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." John 15:26, he says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who will testify about Him. John 15:26, he also says. I copied that verse twice. Ultimately, God's word is perfect, sure, just, pure, clean, and true. And because it is all of those things, we are to establish our lives upon it. Because it is the truth, because it is absolutely certain and firm, we're to build upon it. There's a very famous parable that Jesus used to close the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now you, you are probably very familiar with that parable. Uh, but the, the question is not, are you familiar with it? The question is, do you believe it? Now, are you convinced of its truthfulness? Are you convinced... Uh, To the degree that you are now building your entire life upon what Christ has taught. Are you convinced to that degree? We might profess to build upon Christ, but all too often our practice is to build on the sand. To build upon something else. Well, Jesus says this, but I kind of like this idea over here. That allows me to do what I would like to do in this situation all too often we we wonder why life feels harder than it ought to be you ever have that feeling life is really really hard right now why does this keep happening why does it seem to, that we never have any any traction any stability in life keep getting hit by wave after wave of troubles seems like I, I can never have sure footing Why does it feel like my life is constantly falling apart? Well, I would ask this Have you looked at your foundation? Have you looked to see what you are building on? Is it God and His Word, or is it something else? And really, it doesn't matter what the something else is. Jesus doesn't say, He doesn't break things down into like 10 categories of like, this is the most secure. And then this is like a, an eight. Uh, this will be somewhat secure. Build on this. And then this over here, this far side, that's what you really want to avoid. But anything over here is going to do, be better for you. That's kind of how we, we treat that. It's like a spectrum, right? And we get to choose how much to build upon Christ and how much to build upon our own wisdom. But he's not, he's not giving us a spectrum of ten. He's giving us two choices, right? You either hear and act and build on Christ's word, and it's going to be, uh, lead to stability in life. Uh, or you, you hear Christ's word, and you dismiss it, and you build on anything else. And anything else is sinking sand. Just like the hymn, all other ground is sinking sand. Uh, it, it's not going to support uh, your life. It's going to create constant uh, flux and instability. And these six adjectives, which describe God's word, are here to to teach us, and they are here to convince us that God's and his word are trustworthy. I love what uh, one of the Puritans says on this. He says, there must be but one string to the bow of our trust, and that is the Lord. More particularly, we must repose a holy trust in anything besides God, whether within us or without us we cannot lean on our own understanding it will lead us into a bog we cannot trust in our own heart it is too deceitful we cannot trust our bodily strengths the most brawny arm will utterly fail the assaults of death and sickness legs that now stand like pillars of brass will shortly appear what they really are sinking pillars of molding clay we cannot trust in our natural acquired excellencies They are altogether vanity. There is nothing outside of us that we must trust either. Trusting in any part of creation is to feed on gravel. We must not trust in the abundance of riches. Even in their fullest flow, they are most uncertain and will not profit in the day of wrath. Those trusting in riches can never expect a portion in heaven. Sooner the camel will pass through the eye of a needle than the rich man through the gate of glory. Also, trusting man is but a broken reed. Man is dust, and with death uh, our hopes perish. Ah, but saints can, upon stable ground, build their trust in God. And all that we discover in God will teach us to place the arms of our trust in Him alone. Our God is a safe place on which to lean. And that is what David is writing to convince us to do, uh, to convince us uh, that we can and should, indeed, we must rely upon God's word. That's what he tells us in these adjectives. But what would happen if we would actually do that? If we would actually trust and build upon God's word and God's word alone, where would that lead us in life? I would draw your attention now to the verbs in verses 7 through 9, where David's going to show us, He's going to, to teach us the effects of Scripture. You look at these, uh, these actions. The law of Yahweh is perfect. What does it do? Restoring the soul. The idea is uh, of the, the verb here uh, really has is translated in a variety of ways. But the big idea is that of turning back. If you're going one way, you're going to turn around in the opposite direction. And the word is often translated as uh, repenting or returning. Now uh, here it's translated as uh, restoring. in the same way it's translated in uh, Psalm 23, verse 3. And the idea is that the law of Yahweh brings the soul back to where it ought to be. Do you feel like your soul is far away from God? Do you feel like your soul is in uh, an agitated state? Uh, it's in constant fluctuation, in need of stability. What should you do? Turn to the law of Yahweh. What will it do? It will restore your soul. The King James Version uh, explains this or translates this as converting the soul. The law of Yahweh is able to uh, to show you who God is and how you stand before a holy God. Right, we just got done reading through Deuteronomy. Did anybody read through Deuteronomy and like, I want to do this. I can handle this. No, even Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, what does he say to the Israelites? You're going to fail miserably. And you're going to fail because you need a new heart. And God's going to give you that new heart in the future. And so if you're Israel hearing that at that point in time, you say, well, can I get that new heart now? How can I I sign up for that? Moses says, cry out to God. Look to him in faith. That's the idea of what the law of Yahweh does. It restores the soul. It brings us to repentance. It brings us into right relationship with God. But it does more than just bring us into right relationship with God. It does more than restore our soul. If you look at the next line, it says that the testimony of Yahweh is sure. What does it do? Makes wise the simple. Now, the, the simple, if we're going to call people names, which Proverbs does a lot, this is a term from Proverbs. It's way, the way of uh, describing somebody who is young, who is naive, inexperienced, uh, and they are therefore uh, in need of much uh, uh, instruction. Now they need the testimony. They need the warning of Yahweh to guide and instruct them on what to avoid. Uh, the chapter that we read earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, kind of combines these first two uh, verbs. I think... Uh, The Apostle Paul has Psalm 19 in mind when he's uh, writing in 2 Timothy 3. He says, uh, speaking to to Timothy, he says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what the, the sacred writings are able to do. They make us wise for salvation. They make wise the simple. Third, it says that they re- rejoice the heart or rejoicing the heart. If we if we know the word of God and if we begin to live by the word of God, it is a joy. If we truly believe it and abide by it, uh, it will be a rejoicing uh, within our hearts. Uh, and this is a big contrast between uh, those who look to Jesus in faith and those who don't look to him in faith. Because those who refuse to look to Jesus in faith. Uh, the Word of God and all of its demands upon our life, what does it feel like? It feels like bondage. That's what Psalm 2 says, that the nations are scheming and, and plotting and saying, how can we break uh, the bonds and the, the fetters, that the shackles that God has upon our lives? But to those who have looked to Jesus in faith, obedience to God's Word is a joy to the heart. The fourth line says that The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The command of God provides light to humanity. We are able to see things clearly. Again, Deuteronomy was a book that opened our eyes to sin and our sinfulness. We begin to rightly see who God is and who we are, how we fall short of God's standard, and how we need to cry out for grace and mercy. Not through our own efforts, but we look to Him in faith. The, the fifth line, beginning of verse 9, says the fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The word of God is not here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, it's not a, a court case that's going to be uh, overturned. It's going to be there for a bit and then overturned. God's word uh, endures. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever mark 13 31 heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away the idea that things that are uh, polluted and and corrupt what do they do they decay uh, they they fall apart but those things that are pure and clean they last for a long time now and god's word is is so pure so clean so righteous that it will endure forever the sixth verb that we see, the last line of verse nine, says that they are righteous altogether. The word of God confirms to a a moral and ethical standard that is normal and straight. Uh, Psalm one forty five seventeen: The Lord is righteous in all his ways and the kind in all his deeds. And this is what we we have to see, that because God's word is righteous altogether, uh, the the effect that it's going to have upon us is that it's going to sanctify us. It's going to, to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us more and more like the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the word made flesh, Jesus, who is ultimately the one who sanctifies us and makes us righteous. But he does so through his word and through his spirit. There's a a a story uh, that I found in a book by John MacArthur. It tells of a of a Jewish man who called uh, called the church. This man had been attending uh, the church for four weeks, and after listening to uh, a sermon series that uh, the pastor was going through, called "Delivered to Satan," uh, the the man uh, contacted Pastor John and said, "You were talking to me. You were talking about me in that series." He says, I know that I'm damned. He says, I am an abortionist and I kill babies for a living. He says, last year my clinic did $9 million worth of abortions. If a woman doesn't have a reason, I give her one to get her money. Furthermore, I divorced my wife, married my second wife, and now I'm living with a woman who's not my wife. I've been under psychiatric care for a year and I'm facing bankruptcy. He says, can you help me? A lot of situations. Here was the response from the pastor. He said, I told him that I was unable to help him, but I know someone who could transform his life. Jesus Christ. I told him to read from the gospel of John every day and to call me when he knew who Jesus was. Four days later, he returned and told me, Jesus is God. This was a 50-year-old man who had spent his whole life in Judaism. He said he, and he said, he has to be God because nobody could do what he did or say what he said if he wasn't God. And he was speaking back to me exactly what John's Gospel says. By the, by the power of the Spirit of God, he understood. Not only that, but he also found and read the book of Romans. And through the reading of the word, his sin was laid bare before him, and he had been brought face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. He told me that he had written his resignation letter to the abortion clinic. His wife was meeting him for church. Clearly, the scriptures had dramatically affected him. You think about what all was going on in that man's life. Uh, And yet, what what did the scriptures do? suddenly all of these quandaries all of these dilemmas that he had all of these trials and and struggles he read and understood god's word and then what happened his eyes were opened He, he knew exactly what he needed to do those were hard steps right resigning his his job seeking reconciliation with his wife all of these things but he knew exactly what to do once he understood god's word that that is the power of god's word that we see here Uh, It is able to restore the soul, to enlighten the eyes. Uh, It is able uh, to make the simple wise. It endures forever. And it is altogether righteous. That is the power of God's word. Again, that that is something that we need to be convinced of. Not, Not answers on a test, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God's word can have that kind of an impact upon your life? Do you really believe that God's word, no matter where you are, no matter what you are facing, that it is able to minister to your soul? The hardest things that you're going for that you're going through right now, God's word has answers. That's what David is saying. We've seen the nouns, the adjectives, the verbs. In verses 7 through 9 but now we really see the capstone in verse 10 where the comparisons teach us the value of scripture they speaking of the word of God they are more desirable than gold even more than much fine gold and the difference there is uh, the gold that has been absolutely purified sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb so if you if you had a refined honey or if you take uh, honey right out of the where it's made by the bees And there's a comparison here Again, David wants us to be convinced of something right he wants us to be convinced of the value it's God's word it is more desirable than gold and it is more delightful than honey and those are the, the two greatest pictures that, that David could, could put together in the ancient world. There's infinite value, infinite joy, infinite satisfaction to be found in God's Word. And David is not just saying, think this way about God's Word. He's saying, feel this way about God's Word. Don't, don't lose sight of how he's saying all of these things. He's saying it in a song. He's writing poetry he's expressing his own feelings and emotions I'll quote John Piper again he says the Psalms are designed to inform your thinking in a way that delights your heart that's what he's doing he's seeking to convince us to delight our hearts and to get us to delight in what he is delighting in God's Word ultimately what we see in these four verses We see the role of Scripture. It is called to be the the primary shaper in our lives. We see the trustworthiness of Scripture. We are called to to build upon the Word of God and it alone. We see the effects of Scripture. That it is able to transform our lives. We see the value of Scripture. And we have to, to really wrestle with these truths. We have to wrestle with what is seen here. God has not abandoned his people for thousands of years. And are now our hope is to be found in uh, self-help books published in the last 40 years. It's not what we have. I love what Martin Luther said. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And I pray that it would take hold of each and every one of us. May we give it the proper place in our lives. May we be transformed by it. May it give us hope. And may, may we be convinced that it is able to help us no matter what we are facing. Uh, and if you are here this morning and you need hope, if you're here this morning and you need help, we are here for you. Now, I'm not, Bruce and I are here and others are here not to, to point you to ourselves and say, this is how we did it and all. And this is what you should do. We are here to point you to God's Word. Something that you already have access to. But we're here to help show you all that it says, all that it contains, and how it can transform your life, even as David writes about in this song. There is hope and there is help. Amen?